0: Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Welcome back to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. Thank you all so much for coming back for another episode. I am so excited to have you here to learn something with me. And we're just coming off the end of shark week, but you know can you really have too much of a good thing? And like, I love sharks, so I think we're going to keep it going and we're going to keep talking about sharks today, you know? Like, they need some good PR, they need... We need to learn more about sharks. You always need to learn more about sharks and the ocean in general, but today, sharks, okay? So, we are joined by Laura Garcia-Barcia, and we actually have some interesting topics going on today. So, she is doing her PhD, and she studies the shark fin trade. So whether or not it's safe for consumptions, the effect that mercury has, she says it a lot better than I do. So let's just get started with this episode. (laughs) All right, so welcome to the Water Room Podcast. I am so excited to have you on today. I have a lot of construction going on outside my window right now. So if you hear that, I do apologize, but I will get you to introduce yourself with your full name and your pronouns and a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: So uh, my name is Laura garcia Barcia. I'm a she, her, uh, female. (laughs) And I am a, a marine biologist at FIU, and my PhD research focuses on shark toxicology. That means that I'm interested in how pollutants accumulate in sharks and how that could potentially affect their health and the health of people that eat those shark products.
0: Interesting. I cannot wait to dive into that. But before we get to where you are now, let's talk about what brought you here. So when did you really like fall in love with the ocean and sharks in general? What kind of made you want to pursue this?
1: So um, I'm originally from a small town in Barcelona in Spain and we didn't live super close to the sea, but we did get to go to like the beach a lot. The Mediterranean Sea is a beautiful sea um, to grow up next to. And I just really liked it since I was little, but when I was about 10 years old or so we went to the largest aquarium in Europe which is called the oceanographic and it's also in Spain in another region called Valencia and I just fell in love with it it's amazing I recommend that anyone that can go see it goes go see it yeah because it's beautiful but it was just so cool and I got very interested in marine science and from there you know I just wanted to know more about the ocean I got into liking more sharks because of NAGIO documentaries and shark movies and then um, yeah I just went into environmental biology and moved to Florida.
0: (laughs) That is so cool I really love that uh, the aquarium like the largest aquarium was kind of your like intro to that because I feel like what a great intro just here's everything kind of thing.
1: Yeah and it's very cool because um, like it's a huge area divided by region so you go into like the red sea area or like you know like the atlantic ocean area so like you have it divided by like water bodies around the globe so it's very very cool
0: that sounds so cool i'm so sorry if you can hear the construction right now it's okay (laughs) we started that this morning and i was like of course of course they did (laughs) love it
1: i'll probably have a leaf blower in a little little bit don't worry (laughs)
0: fantastic we love working from home you know so you moved to florida why florida what brought you here
1: So, um, unfortunately, um, even though Spain's a very important fishing nation, we don't invest a lot in marine research, so we don't even have a marine biology degree, which is pretty sad. So, I had to study environmental biology, which I loved, but on my senior year, I was allowed to go abroad somewhere that had marine bio electives to take all of those marine bio classes and come back with a more like marine environmental biology kind of degree. Um, So... I wanted to do all of like my internship and honors project in a lab that studied sharks. So I looked around and my university had a partnership with FIU. And so that's where I found Mike Hidehouse. And then I just moved to FIU for my senior year and started working with Mike even before I started my
0: classes. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. So did you do a master's in between your undergrad in your PhD or did you just jump right into a PhD?
1: So I went straight on to a PhD because I've always wanted to be a university professor and I knew that ultimately for that you needed a PhD Um, and having been working with Mike for a year already I had a solid project I knew what I wanted to do so we actually both thought there was no need for it. Some people do a master's and it's a great opportunity especially for people that want to like narrow down what field of marine science they want to study. You know, you don't necessarily finish your bachelor's knowing exactly what you want to do. Um, and a master's can give you those kind of skills. But in my case, I just went straight in and I'm surviving. So
0: Surviving. <laughs> That's what we like to hear. So what is your PhD? What are you looking at?
1: So I look at two different things. Um, My research happens both in Florida and in Hong Kong. So we'll we'll have to go by parts, but um, in Florida, I use bull sharks as a model species to understand how mercury accumulates in sharks. That means um, whether behavioral decisions uh, affect their final mercury concentration. So mercury is a pollutant that can be toxic for fish, We don't know yet if it's toxic for sharks, but we're trying to figure that out. There's a lot of good scientists doing work on that too. Um, But my questions are more of the type, if a shark has a certain diet because it's more of a picky eater versus another shark that it's a lot more different fish species, which one will have more mercury than the other? Or if you decide that you're a bull shark that loves fresh water and stays closer to fresh water, right? Because bull sharks have the ability to do that. Are you going to have more mercury than a bull shark that hangs out more in open water in the middle of the ocean. So those kind of questions are my work in Florida. And then in Hong Kong, I look at the mercury levels in shark fins and whether those are above or below safe human consumption. And so I study the most of the top traded species, which would include you know like all of the great hammerheads, black tip, oceanic white tip, the bull shark also, tiger shark. So um, I get to work with a lot more species there. Uh, and it has also led me to opportunities, for example, in Tobago, um, which is closer to us right than Hong Kong, where the government wanted to know whether the shark meat, they, they are like both consuming and selling to the world, is above or below safe consumption limits so governments do have these questions and want to know if what they're fishing is okay for you know their citizens so it's been very cool to be able to do policy like internationally
0: that sounds so incredibly cool I love that so (laughs) how do you determine like I guess what is the safe consumption limit how do you determine this like how are you doing this project (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, a lot of chemistry, believe it or not. I'm, I spend more time in the chemistry department than in the biology department these days. Um, but thankfully, we have a very nice uh, head of the chemistry department here at FIU. But so basically, you would grab a muscle sample or a fin sample, right? Um, when we get uh, samples from Hong Kong, for example, we get fin trimmings, which are pieces of fin that the sellers discard when they're preparing a fin for it to look pretty on display whatever they cut off they sell for the locals in smaller bags and those are cheaper so locals use it to make like their own soup at home or other things um so we buy those every like so often throughout the year and then with collaborators in in hong kong they get identified to species um, using genetics. and once they know which species they are, I get the top traded species. and with chemical analysis, I like tell how much mercury there is. So basically there's a machine in which after I digest the sample and prepare the sample, which takes me like two weeks, I can put the sample in the machine and then the machine's like, this is how much mercury it has. Um, in regards to the limits, it would depend. So for example, Europe has a limit of one part per million. Uh, Hong Kong has 0.5 parts per million, which is, you know, half of what Europe has. So it just depends on what each country considers. And so parts per million of mercury is something that's very abstract for us, um, but that's actually very little. So um, only tuna, swordfish, larger sharks will be above that limit. The normal fish you go buy at a store here in Florida, you would go to Publix, right? Um, usually is below um, any kind of concerning mercury levels.
0: <laughs> interesting. Cool. That's really interesting to know. I like. It's one of those things that you always hear about, like, look out for mercury in fish. Like, don't eat too much fish because of mercury, but you never really, like, dig into it. And, or I guess I never really thought about, like, sharks having mercury because I don't eat sharks myself, you know? Like, it's not something that I eat right. around. So I've never really thought about it like that. That's so interesting.
1: Yeah. So, um, you can eat all the fish you want <laughs> as long as it's, you know, from like a sustainable fishery, but you just have to be aware that the larger the fish, like the higher up is in the food web, the more likely it is that it's going to have higher levels of mercury. So for example, tuna or swordfish are something that specially pregnant women and children should avoid eating especially like consistently, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but we are learning, and this is still, you know, a growing field of research, but we're learning that there are other elements that can counteract the toxicity of mercury, like for example, selenium. So if, uh, you know, a can of tuna is very high in mercury, but also very high in selenium, that selenium can offset the mercury that you find in that can. So Cool. Uh, we're looking into those interactions right now it's you know again a growing field um, especially in shark research marine mammal people have known about this for longer I don't know why shark people did it but <laughs> um, it's okay we're figuring it out um, so you know we're we're looking into that now which is very interesting too
0: yeah that's so I guess for people who don't know can you give us a little overview of like what shark finning is and why you have to study this like where is Where are they coming from? What's going on? Why, why is it a trade?
1: Yeah, um, so I study the shark fin trade. No, so, not so much shark finning, but we'll talk about why those two are different. So um, the shark fin trade is a global market, you know, where fishermen, whether they are shark fishermen or maybe tuna or swordfish fishermen that accidentally catch sharks, fish sharks, and then they go to port, land the entire shark. And then the fins are separated to get exported to Asia and the meat gets exported to either Europe or usually South America. So that would be the shark trade for both fins and meat, right? Oh. Now, most countries net for decades now have been um, following a rule that's called the fins attached rule, right? And that means that any shark that you catch has to come to port with its fins attached. You cannot just cut the fins of the shark, throw the shark at sea and just keep the fins. Right. Mm. Um, historically, and I'm talking about decades ago, this was done by multiple countries, including Spain, because if you're a fisherman and the most valuable thing is the fins, you're not really interested in keeping all of the shark because it takes a lot of space on the boat. So you keep the most valuable part, the fins, throw the carcass out, hope that, you know, another shark will eat it. And then you just sell more fins. Right. Um, because everything in a shark is usable we use the skin we use the cartilage we use the meat we use everything we use oil for makeup so um because everything has a profit these fins attached rule took place all over the world and now most sharks are landed as a whole and everything is used that doesn't mean finning doesn't exist in There's some lower income nations where fishermen still have to do this to survive. You know, like if they took the whole shark onto a boat, they would not be making enough money to even go out shark fishing. So this still happens in some remote places, especially where fishermen don't make a lot of money to start with and they have to venture out at sea. So if you're going farther away, it costs more gas, right? Like your boat needs more gas to go farther away. So you have to offset that cost somehow, and that's probably with more fins than with more meat. So finning does happen; it's just not a common practice anymore.
0: Not as prevalent as it used.
1: Exactly, to be,
0: which, in terms of that, is a lot better than what it used to be.
1: Yes, and we have examples of sustainable shark fisheries in the U.S. in Australia. We, it can be done. It's just the examples we usually see are from countries with a lot of money and a lot of resources and you know, like the scientific background to be able to do it. So now what we're working on and there's actually other scientists at FIU, very committed to this is in developing tools for lower income nations to be able to start doing stock assessments of their fisheries and to start figuring out if what they're fishing is sustainable or not. And, Um, You can talk to her another day, but um, one of my colleagues, Jesse Quinlan, has established a method that works in Belize and now has been adopted by the government. So now they can track their fisheries throughout the years and it costs very little money. And like the fishermen love contributing to it because they feel like they're a part of it. So it can be done, but it takes time and it takes, you know, like more privileged nations helping out other yeah. nations that need the help and want to have sustainable fisheries but maybe don't have all of the resources at hand.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that's starting to be more of a thing and is kind of an option that we're leading towards. That's super super exciting. And yeah. so to go back to your other research, what you're doing with the bull sharks. Tell us more about that because you did mention bull sharks being picky eaters like if they wanted to <laughs> them, like what?
1: So, <laughs> yeah, so that's um I always say that part of my PhD is my baby because um I first started working with sharks with Mike in the Everglades and going to bull shark nursery areas. So the first shark I ever like sampled was a baby bull shark and wow. they will always be like a little special to me. Like that's the Everglades behind me. I guess you can't see it in the podcast, but believe me I have a giant map of the Everglades in my living room. <laughs> um so um Bull sharks, when they're born, they're usually born in nursery areas here in the Gulf of Mexico. So one that we've been studying for many years, it's Tarpon Bay here in the Everglades. There's a lot of other well-studied nursery areas like the Indian River Lagoon or in Texas, we have San Antonio Bay, Sabine Lake, Matagorda Bay. Like there's a lot of them where bull sharks are like properly studied throughout the years. Right. So we've learned a lot of these baby bull sharks and how they, you know, like move around the world when they're born (laughs) and So, for example, for our tarpon bay sharks, we know that the majority of them are more comfortable staying in the freshwater areas until they're big enough that they can, you know, protect themselves from other predators, like defend themselves a little better. And then they do swim towards those coastal waters where they can feed on a more coastal type of prey species. However... At those same sizes of like sharks that are like just born, like one, two years old, we have some sharks that, when young, just decide to take the risk and go feed on those coastal food webs. For no apparent reason, some of the sharks just keep going like back and forth between the coastal food web and the freshwater. They do come back, of course, because the risk out in the coastal waters is way too high to just stay there forever. But yeah. they do these trips like all the time, just to go out and feed. And if you take a muscle sample from them, you can see um, that their chemistry, their carbon and their nitrogen chemistry is different. It's more similar to those of sharks that always feed on saltwater than you know, their counterparts that were born at the same time that just stay in freshwater until they're big enough and they feel secure enough to go downstream. So um, one of my big questions was like, well, Does that affect their mercury levels? If we look at the mercury content of these sharks that like consistently go downstream, are they going to have more or less mercury than the ones that feed in freshwater all the time until they're, you know, like four or five years old and they leave the nursery? And from what we're seeing, it seems that the sharks that do hang out in freshwater more tend to have more mercury. Hmm. Um, It all depends on what the water quality was initially. So, you know, if you were. Uh, Let's say a freshwater bull shark, right? A freshwater like a bull shark that likes staying in freshwater. But on the area you live, there was no mercury. It doesn't really matter, right? You're not going to accumulate a lot of mercury. But in areas like the Everglades, which is a mercury hotspot, um, if you are a bull shark that stays in those freshwater areas, as opposed to the ones that go most to coast more to coastal waters, it seems like you are more likely to accumulate higher mercury concentrations at those than you know take the risk sooner
0: cool that's interesting now does this mercury have any like we've talked about how it affects us as humans but does it have any effect on the sharks themselves like does it hurt them so okay for them like what happens with that
1: so that's a great question and we still don't know um we also have a colleague maria savando who's looking into that right now so we're all like everyone that's interested in mercury and sharks is like itching to see her results. They're going to be amazing. (laughs) But (laughs) yeah, but um, so right now we know it affects fish like bony fish in certain ways. So um, mercury in itself as an element is not toxic, but there are certain types of mercuries like methylmercury that are toxic and methylmercury is the one we more readily accumulate just because of its type of chemistry. It like associates better with our cells. And we just like accumulate it easier than other types of mercury. Right. So um, methylmercury is a very potent neurotoxicant. And that just means that it will affect your central nervous system. So for fish, that means reduced swimming performance. Fish don't swim as fast, or they swim like at an angle. They don't like quite swim straight. Um, Yeah, it's pretty sad. (laughs) And then, um, you know, you can have problems with mating behavior like they don't try to mate when it's mating season or they have no interest in mating at all they can also have no interest in eating and become super super skinny until they ultimately die Um, and we can also see tissue damage we can see liver failure we can see overall you know like tissue damage on the gills and like ultimately if the methylmercury levels are very high bony fish will die of this toxicity with sharks we just don't no, right now yeah. so sharks have been around for millions and millions of years um very recent studies are starting to show some evidence that some species like for example the bull shark um might have mechanisms to get rid of that toxicity oh. which would also be very cool wow. uh, but again we're we're all we all come from like a marine biologist training kind of perspective and we're diving into like deep chemistry so we're working with very good chemists and biogeochemists to figure out all of these cycles and all of these dynamics because we can't do it on our own so it is a very interdisciplinary work that requires time and there's only like very few experts in this kind of like mercury like getting rid of mercury mechanisms studies so we're on it, and we will figure out if mercury is, in fact, a problem for sharks or not. We know for sure it is a problem for humans that will consume these high levels of yeah. mercury coming from shark products. Um, but yeah, I'm really curious to see what it does to sharks, because I think it's going to be very dependent of the area of the world we're talking about, whether, you know, like these sharks are hanging out in areas where mercury is high to start with, the diet of the sharks and the size of the sharks. So I think yeah. maybe a little shark. If you put a little shark in an area where there's gonna be a lot more mercury, it's gonna potentially do worse faster, right? Than a larger shark, maybe. But we don't know any of this and we're like still figuring out. That's what logic would say. But you know, (laughs) then sharks come and do crazy things. So um you will have to stay tuned for this kind of research and results. I
0: love that. That's so exciting. (laughs) It's also one of those things that's like through your undergrad, you're like, I'm not really a big fan of chemistry. So like, that's why I like marine bio. And then you get to your PhD and you're like, well, (laughs) oh yeah. So
1: that was exactly my case. I was not a chemistry fan. Like if you talk to my high school teacher, she's floored. I'm doing my PhD (laughs) on this. Like she does not understand how this happened. But Mm -hmm. when I started environmental biology, Um, because it was environmental biology not biology by itself we had a huge portion of our major covering ecotoxicology as a course like instead of being just like a one semester class it was a full year class so we took a lot of credits on it right and I got really interested on it because we kept talking about different examples of different like both organic and inorganic pollutants and examples of how people you know just like start using a material, think the material is amazing and perfect, and it's going to fix half of the problems of the planet. And then 30 years down the road, we find out that using that material, you know, indiscriminately has caused a lot of environmental problems. And throughout history, we've done that multiple times. And I think one of the latest examples is plastic for us right now. So um you know it's just crazy to see that pat- pattern being repeated over and over off like mm-hmm. oh yeah like deet oh my god deet is amazing like let's spray kids with deet and now like deet is banned right yeah. so
0: <laughs> it's just to see that cycle
1: right it keeps happening so i'm very curious about how we let it keep happening over yeah. and over um but you know i hope that in the future i can I can be on a more of like a regulatory kind of role where I can help decide which products are actually like allowed to be like <laughs> so spread we out in the world. In the yeah, so that would be great. Uh, but yeah, like, you know, like being more of like a kind of like regulatory toxicologist and um, I would love to teach, of course. I still want to be a professor. It's one of my passions. Um, Mentoring undergrads through my PhD has been, probably like the highlight besides handling sharks (laughs) is it's teaching other undergrads to not only handle sharks, but also do a lot of the chemistry in the lab, which they end up loving. I think all of us kind of love lab work where you can have a podcast on and just like keep pipetting, you know, um, it beats the office any day, even just being in the lab. So I hope I can do that for many, many years and teach, you know, undergrads and PhD students one day, I guess, um, on what their interests are.
0: Absolutely. I think it's so funny how, like, you and I are very similar in the way that we both like, chemistry? No, thank you. Like, not, <laughs> not our vibe. But I feel like it's one of those things that if I'm in a chemistry class, I'm like, ugh. But then if you put chemistry in perspective of something I'm interested in, like you, right. like, EcoTalks, like, it's going to become interesting because it's, Applicable to what you like and what you know, so I think it's really important to like acknowledge that and be like, okay, I might not like chemistry now, but might need it in the future. Right,
1: and that's that's something that will happen. Um, also with math, for example, <laughs> you can not like math. I I happen to like math since I was little, but like I know a lot of people that don't or don't like stats. Right, so when you need it to like figure out whether like what do your results look like, right? Because you can collect a hundred bull sharks and then have a beautiful Excel data sheet, but then what do you do with it, right? Like you yeah. have to figure out what are the trends in your results, is there anything significant? What factors like are making your results look that way. So you need stats for that. So in the end, every scientist ends up finding a part of stats they like either like or feel comfortable with yeah. and using that all the time cool. so you know like you can find a part that you like um i'm for example extremely bad at like coding so <laughs> i don't i don't love r uh but you like you know you have to use it so yeah. it's okay i'm i'm surviving like i said <laughs> um but it's not my favorite part of it but you know the chemistry part i've grown very fond of and i really really enjoy being in the lab, I'm usually in the lab with other like chemistry PhD students. So it's crazy when you talk to them and they explain to you what they're studying and like the inner dynamics of like the molecules and you're like, okay, so like I study chemistry, but like not that kind of chemistry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you're like, oh, okay, cool. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> love that, Amazing. And I think it's also important to say, like you said, you mentioned you're working with the chemistry department. Like There's never going to be a time where you're just shoved into this and they say, do it on your own. Like you're always going to have resources and people you can reach out to.
1: Oh yeah. And we have, don't get me wrong. Like we have Marine scientists that are great at statistics, for example. So like I have good friends that I can go and ask questions to when you're doing a PhD, you have committee members that will ultimately, you know, grant you the PhD that they, you defend, but along the way they're supposed to help you and support you. So I have a statistician in my committee and every time I just like like hit a roadblock like a major roadblock I just go crying like Beth please what am I doing right so um, but she's awesome and she helps me a lot too so you know if you while doing a PhD surround yourself of scientists that want to see you succeed and have a committee that will help you along the way that makes the experience also a lot better
0: absolutely absolutely and now it's time for what might be my favorite question of the podcast If you could be any type of shark, what type of shark would you be?
1: Huh. (laughs) I had never asked myself that. Um, (laughs) I think the obvious answer would probably be a bull shark, just to be able to go freshwater um, and saltwater, you know, like go upstream, go hang out in lakes, that kind of stuff. Um, But tiger sharks are also very cool. cool. So if I could be a tiger shark in Australia, I think that that might be it. Like they're very big animals that just basically wreck sea turtles, like just (laughs) eating sea turtle shells. Like, um, I, I, yeah, I think that would be my other option.
0: (laughs) I love that. And then if there was a little girl listening to this podcast and she was like, wow, I want to be just like you, what would be your piece of advice for her?
1: Um my piece of advice would be for them to be themselves, not to try to be like me. So um, it's okay if they want to be like me in the sense that they like sharks. Like that's, that's fair. A lot of people like sharks, but then when you get into studying this, choose what it's your passion, you know, Mm -hmm. like you can hear me talk about toxicology and be like, Oh, that sounds super interesting. And maybe that is the way they'll end up going. Right. But just get into the field and explore it because there's so many different options in marine science that can be someone's passion that just like be yourself and you'll find that niche within the field
0: yeah absolutely I love that I feel like we don't get that piece of advice a lot (laughs) yeah they can want to be just like you but find your own spot I love that yeah
1: And I think that's something, you know, marine science is a field that's so big. Oh my God. Like when I was telling my parents, like, I want to be a marine scientist, you know, they, they couldn't even understand that there were people like studying just like bioluminescent sharks, like who gives money for that. Right. Like that's something that to a non-scientist person, they don't understand how funding works or anything. So it's crazy, but yeah, you just have to find what interests you the most. And like, become an expert in it because it's your passion and it will all go well.
0: (laughs) So just before we head off, I would love for you to share your social media. If there's anyone that wanted to follow along with you and follow your academic and shark journey, where could they find you?
1: Yeah. I think what makes more sense would be my Twitter account, which is Laura G Barcia, Um, and then my Instagram handle is the same, but that one's more just like, you know, me with my friends, not necessarily always shark science. So Twitter makes more sense for all of you to follow.
0: <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you so, so much for joining me today. It was so fun getting to talk to you. It was absolutely great. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at waterwomenpod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.